fully. Uh, we can, we can, um, there are different positions, uh, physical positions that we can take, uh, that are, I think, acceptable to the Lord so, so long as our heart is in the proper, uh, state of frame of mind. Uh, obviously laying down, uh, uh, with your elbow like this against your head is not a good position to honor God in, in corporate worship. So nobody do that. Uh, but, um, Anyway, I say that so because I don't have a problem with having you all sit down rather than stand for this. Ah, Second Chronicles is our scripture reading. We are finally in Second Chronicles. I praise the Lord for bringing me to this point. Hopefully, you will feel the same after we get our work our work our way through Second Chronicles. But we are. Um, in Second Chronicles chapter 1, I will be reading the entire chapter, which is 17 verses. This is the Word of God, because He is the ultimate author of it. Uh, it has everything that you and I need for life and godliness, and it is uh, infallible. That is to say, it is incapable of error uh, in its, the original language in which it was given, and we have the promise and faithful translations of the original languages that it remains to us the authoritative word of God. So listen to it in light of that. First Corinthians, or First Chronicles, rather one one. Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him, and exalted him exceedingly. Excuse me, greatly. And Solomon spoke to all Israel to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' households. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon. For God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses the servant of the Lord had made in the wilderness. However, David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord, meaning in Gibeon. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. Solomon went up there before the Lord to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, Thou hast dealt with my father, David, with great loving kindness, and hast made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, thy promise to my father David is fulfilled. For thou hast made me king over all, over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of thine? And God said to Solomon, Because you had this in mind, and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you asked even for long life, 
but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge, that you may, that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor those who will come after you. So Solomon went from the high place, which was at Gibeon, from the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. And Solomon amassed chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamores in the lowland. And Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The king's traders procured them from Kew for a price. And they imported chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver apiece and horses of for 150 apiece. And by the same means, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we covet your assistance in this time as this means of grace is utilized, the preaching of your word. I especially covet your assistance. Lord, you need to be the one that we hear from, not me, ultimately. Would you please cause us, through your word preached, to hear your voice, Lord Jesus, you who wrote this word, and you who promised to speak through uh, the appointed man, a man of your appointment, uh, to your people as it is expounded. Would you please do that for your honor, for our good, and for the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, um, I'm going to tell you something about myself. First, I'm going to uh, take the staple out of my notes here, which I should have done earlier. There we go. Um, I'm going to tell you something about myself, children, which may not be a surprise to some of you children that have known me for a while, but it may may be a surprise. And especially those of you that uh, I haven't known as long, you might go, oh, wow, that's interesting. Or maybe not so. But anyway, I'm going to tell you about myself. Um, I like what I'm going to call ideal things in my world. I like ideal things. You adults will recognize this as being a perfectionist, perfectionism. Um, I like things that look perfect, children. Ideal things are things that uh, are perfect things. And I like things to look ideal in my world. Um, I want to see ideal rose, roses on my rose bush, which is why I have three rose bushes in the backyard I regularly go out and prune off the bad roses. Miss, Miss Vicky taught me this. To prune off the bad roses 
that either are dying or are misshapen or the bugs have gotten to it and so it's all kind of crinkly and distorted, I snap them off regularly. Kind of weird behavior, but that's I do that because I like to see only the best ideal roses on my bush when I look out my bedroom window. I also like an ideal lawn. Uh, this past week, uh, our lawn had grown particularly uh, shaggy because I've been putting a lot of water on it to keep it alive in the summer, and it grew very fast. And uh, But because of all the rain we had, I was unable to get to it uh, in a, uh, when I should have, and so it was really long when I finally did mow it. But I mowed it. But I not just I mowed it carefully, and I edged the whole of my driveway and around on the curb out front, and I uh, weed-eated the uh, uh, the part around my back porch to get rid of all the little extra blades of grass that were kind of sticking up next to the porch. And I created what was kind of almost an ideal lawn, and I felt good about it after it was done. Maybe you have things like that in your life where you like things to be ideal. You like to have your bed perfectly made. Actually, maybe that's your mom. Anyway, (laughs) Um, but a lot of us like ideal things. Well, the reason I'm bringing this all up to you children is the writer of the human writer and also the divine writer of this book that we're looking at, the whole Bible ultimately, but we're talking about Second Chronicles now. The writer of Second Chronicles... Uh, composed really the whole of this book, but but this front uh, this first chapter in particular, he composed it in order to represent King Solomon. You know about King Solomon. He wanted to represent King Solomon as a type of ideal king in Israel. Now, the truth is Solomon wasn't an ideal king. He made some pretty big mistakes that are recorded elsewhere. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But but the writer of the Chronicles, who is ultimately God, wanted us, as we read what he wrote in Chronicles, to see, to not think about the, the unwise or sinful things that Solomon did, but to think about the things that that make him look ideal as a king of Israel and as a as a descendant of David, his father. And that theme is going to run throughout our discussion of, uh, my preaching rather, of Second Chronicles. It's going to come up regularly. That Solomon is portrayed this way. Even though most of us know that Solomon did some pretty unwise and ungodly things before his days were over. Although I think he repented at the end, as evidenced by Ecclesiastes and his writing of Ecclesiastes. Uh, but at any rate, we need to think of, uh, of Solomon because the Lord wants us to, because uh, the way he wrote this, as a type of ideal, uh, as ideal as a sinner can be, king of Israel, uh, descendant of David, as we read through this and work our way through this. Um, background, I want to just remind you, uh, we talked a little bit about the background of uh, this in back, uh, I don't know, six weeks ago when I was, however many weeks ago when I, when I did uh, first... Chronicles chapter 17, but First and Second Chronicles that we call First and Second Chronicles were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and uh, there's clear evidence within Chronicles that it was composed 
at some point, both books together, were composed at some point after the Jewish people's return from their exile in Babylon. You recall there were three returns. There was uh, the first return from Babylon. uh, They were carried away in 586 B.C. from Jerusalem when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem. Then the Persians took the Babylonians over, and the Persian king Cyrus said uh, people could go back to Jerusalem. Jews could go back. That happened in 538 B.C., roughly. Then, again, in uh, 467, I believe it was, or 57, 67 B.C., Ezra and another group came back. And then in 444, Nehemiah and another group came back from Babylon uh, to the land of Israel. But it's it's pretty evident uh, that... The uh, Chronicles was composed after at least one wave of Jewish uh, returnees returned to uh, Israel from Babylon. So the earliest possible date for the writing of Chronicles is 538-539 B.C., when uh, King Cyrus of Persia issued his decree that they could return. That's the earliest possible date for its writing. But... In light of a genealogy that's recorded in First Chronicles, remember they're written together, uh, in light of a genealogy that's recorded in First Chronicles chapter 3, verses 17 through 24, it is much more likely that uh, the Chronicles were written somewhere between 450 and 400 B.C. That's much more likely. So uh, around or after Nehemiah's group returned, uh, in 444. That's most likely when Chronicles was composed. Early Jewish tradition says that Ezra was the primary uh, author of Chronicles, uh, writer of Chronicles, as well as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what early Jewish tradition says, the Talmud and so on. Uh, but there's no biblical, direct biblical or extra biblical evidence which proves that Ezra wrote it. It's an okay guess. Maybe it's even likely, but we can't prove anything. So it's speculative. Just like it's speculative to say that uh, the kings, first and second kings, were also together, were written by Jeremiah. That's speculative as well. Um, uh, nice guess, but that's all it is. Uh, the chronicler's original... Uh, oh, by the way, uh, because we don't know who wrote it, I'm going to, as I said uh, some weeks back, I'm going to be referring to the inspired, and that's important, human author of First uh, of Chronicles, I'm going to be referring to him as the Chronicler. So get used to that. You're going to hear it a lot uh, over the coming months ahead. So the Chronicler, <clears throat> wow, <clears throat> croak. The Chronicler's original purpose in writing what he wrote in First and Second Chronicles was to give his readers, returnees from Babylon, an accurate historical record of Israel's past and of God's dealings with Israel in its past. That's why he wrote this, to, to if you will, teach a new generation of, of people who needed instruction because they'd been off in Babylon and forgotten largely what, uh, what had been taught to them in, in, uh, in earlier generations. They needed a re, uh, refresher, if you will, on Israel's history with more added to it than was found in uh, the sources that uh, the chronicler was using. Speaking of sources, uh, the chronicler used, uh, relied heavily upon in his writing of this book, he relied heavily upon the previously written book of Kings for 
the content that's found here. That's why you see a lot of overlap. There is a lot of overlap. Indeed, the majority of material found, particularly in Second Chronicles, the majority of that material um, is uh, uh, comes out of the kings. Uh, reworded sometimes, but it comes out of the kings. And by the way, kings, first uh, and second kings together, was probably written about 550, that's a decent guess, B.C. So 100 to 150 years probably before Chronicles was written is when the kings were written. And the chronicler also, by the way, not only relied heavily upon the kings, but also utilized a number of otherwise unknown sources that he mentions throughout Second Chronicles. That's all kind of academic stuff. I'm sorry, but it's necessary to, to prep you for what's coming so I don't have to repeatedly repeat this uh, and, uh, when it might be uh, helpful to know. Okay, so something I said uh, last when I was in First Chronicles chapter 17 preaching on the Davidic covenant was um, the concept of covenant is central to the Bible's message. Covenant Presbyterian Church. That's why we have the name. Because it is central to the Bible's message, we believe. Uh, the Bible teaches that, we're, that there were essentially only two divine human covenants that are found in the Bible. The covenant of works, we call it. The, the, that phrase is not in the Bible, but neither is Trinity, but that's clearly biblical as well. Covenant of works, which is the covenant, that, uh, the arrangement that God uh, made with Adam, more, more better way to say is imposed upon Adam in the garden when he said, uh, stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you'll die. Um, you can eat of every other tree, just don't touch that one. That was a covenant, and that was a covenant of works, of human, uh, that required human obedience. And it was made with the first Adam as the representative of all of the human race. There was a second divine human covenant, which we know as the covenant of grace. Again, phrase not found in the Bible, but uh, a uh, a concept that is clearly biblical nonetheless, that covenant was made with the second Adam, Jesus Christ, as the representative of all the elect whom God wished to save. And there have been, though there are essentially only two covenants, there have been numerous administrations of the one covenant of grace down through the ages, including the one that we looked at some weeks back when, we were, when I preached through First Chronicles 17, which is the Davidic covenant. And the reason I preached through the Davidic Covenant before I preached, started here in Second Chronicles is because um, the Davidic Covenant was not only made with David, but it was also made with all of David's royal descendants, whose lives and actions are recorded in Second Chronicles. So the Davidic Covenant is the basis upon which God dealt with these people who we're going to be looking at in coming months ahead. And it's also going to be the basis upon which they are supposed to respond properly to God, but oftentimes did not, with grave consequences. That's why we looked at the Davidic covenant uh, some weeks ago in preparation for this. So, that brings me to today's text. Two things that we're going to see in this text, I uh, intend to show you from this text. The first is this. The chronicler portrays in this passage Solomon as the ideal royal son of David. The very point I made with the children a few moments ago. But secondly, this text also, in this text also, the chronicler portrays Solomon's glorious rule as a fulfillment of God's covenant with David. 
So we're going to look at those two points in our remaining time together. First, again, the chronicler portrays Solomon as the ideal royal son of David. Or maybe I should say an ideal royal son of David, of his father, King David. How did the chronicler do this? I'm going to give you several things that are found in this text that are uh, that evidence, uh, and one of which is, is um, not found in this text, actually, one of the points, but that evidences this fact uh, that proves, if you will, the fact that the chronicler is trying to do this. This is his goal, in particularly in chapter 1, but really uh, his goal in all of Chronicles. So first is this. The chronicler portrays Solomon as an ideal uh, son of David, first by omitting something. And that is actually several things. He omitted a number of details that the author of First Kings included in his account. Remember, the chronicler relied heavily on First Kings to write. Sometimes he just lifted large sections of First Kings and imported them into his work. Not all the time, but sometimes he did that. Clearly, he was reading First Kings and copying First Kings in numerous places in his work. But he omitted stuff. Um, in several places, and it's deliberate, you see. It's a deliberate omission on the part of the human and the divine author. Well, what, what are some of the things that were omitted uh, in, in, by the chronicler that the uh, writer of Kings included? Well, um, first is this. He omitted how Solomon's place on the throne was nearly lost to his scheming half-brother Adonijah. Or Adonaiah, that's actually how you pronounce it. First Kings one records that. This uh, uh, First Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles one does not. So he doesn't. He didn't include uh, that uh, that threat, early threat to his ascending to the throne of David. Secondly, the chronicler omitted Solomon's executions of his recently deceased father's enemies, Joab and Shimei, as well as his father's, and his own personal enemy, his brother Adonijah. Adonijah. I'll, I'll pronounce it both ways. He omitted that. If you read the account in 1 Kings chapter 2, it's pretty bloody and gory, and you're kind of like, did he really need to do all this? It's kind of the impression you get. You shouldn't stay with that impression, but it is the impression you get when you read 1 Chronicles, uh, 1 Kings rather, chapter 2. Another thing that the chronicler omitted was he omitted the record of Solomon's seemingly inappropriate marriage to pagan Pharaoh's daughter. She was a pagan. She was an Egyptian. Remember, we're not supposed to do that, right? We're not supposed to be unequally yoked. That applied back in the Old Testament times, too. Chronicler omitted that. First Kings writer did not. Also, fourthly, First Kings chapter 3, verse 3 offers an imprecise and therefore undoubtedly troubling statement. Uh, troubling, that is, to the chronicler's uh, post-exilic readers. And that statement was this. First Kings 3.3 stated that Solomon sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Period. End of sentence. He didn't, he didn't explain it. First Kings author did not explain it. He just said, Solomon sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And the chronicler's first readers would have gone, say what? Uh, 
if, uh, if, they, if he had included what First Kings said at this point in First Kings. He, he deliberately avoided saying this. Now, he did mention a high place, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Actually, we're going to do it just next, uh, here in just a second. One other thing, uh, actually two other things that the chronicler omitted that, um, that would have uh, sullied his attempts to portray Solomon as an ideal son of David was he omitted the Lord's warning that is found in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 14, that God would only, quote, prolong Solomon's days if he kept all his commandments. Well, kept, kept his commandments. I don't think the word all is in there. But if he, if he walked with the Lord and kept his commandments, words to that effect. Chronicler omitted that, that conditional language that is found in 1 Kings. And then finally, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, references Solomon's youth and naivete. 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 1, does not. See, the chronicler deliberately selected what he was going to include and what he was going to exclude. And he's saying something by what he wants to exclude or did exclude. Namely, that that messes up the point I'm trying to make or that muddies the waters in making the point that I'm trying to make to you. So, what were some other things that the chronicler did to portray Solomon as the ideal royal son of David besides omitting material that the uh, first Kings author did. Well, secondly, he uh, he portrayed Solomon this way by indicating that Solomon's kingdom was firmly established. In verse 1, now Solomon, the son of David, established himself, interesting language there, now uh, Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom. Now that's the New American Standard rendering of it. This first verse uh, particularly that first half of the verse, but really the whole first verse, is essentially the chronicler's summary statement of all that he's about to say in this chapter that I read to you that's our text for today, verses 1 through 17. It's, this is a summary statement, verse 1 is. Okay? And he then explicates it in the next 16 verses. Uh, and the New American Standard renders that, that Solomon established himself securely. Well, the the um, Christian Standard Bible, the old Holman Christian Standard Bible, now called Christian Standard Bible, words the first half of verse 1 this way. And I, I like this better, actually. But Solomon strengthened his hold on his kingdom. That's another way to render the Hebrew there, the Hebrew word that is used there. Both ways are legit. But I think, in some ways, the Christian Standard Bible's wording is a little bit more helpful. Anyway, this same Hebrew word that I'm referring to, and other synonymous terms that are synonymous with it, occur in many places in the Chronicles. Here I'm talking about both First and Second Chronicles. And when this word or its synonyms are used in the Chronicles, they refer to such uh, accomplishments as the building of fortifications, uh, there are at least three places in uh, Chronicles, Second Chronicles, where that's uh, where the word is used there to, to describe the building of fortifications. 
Another, uh, it's also used to describe the raising up of armies or the gathering of an army, putting together of an army. It's also used of the moral reformation of the nation of Israel in, uh, in first, second Chronicles chapter 15 verse 8. And it's also used to describe the securing of one's throne against one's opponents in, uh, three or four places as well. My point is that to establish the kingdom probably involved uh, all of these things that I just said, building fortifications, raising up of armies, moral reformation of a nation, and securing of one's throne. It probably involves all of those things when the chronicler says Solomon established himself securely, and perhaps it involves other things as well. That's what he means by it, is my point. And by saying this, he's saying that's what ideal kings do. Get it? Thirdly, he does this, uh, uh, portrays Solomon as an ideal king by emphasizing that Solomon ruled over all Israel. In places, a couple of places in First and Second Kings, where uh, where the, where Solomon is utilizing the material in First or Second Kings, the word "all Israel" is found in the Chronicles, but not in Kings. One of those places is verse 2 of our text. And Solomon spoke to all Israel. There's another place further on down the line uh, where he does the same thing, where he inserts something that he himself is inserting into otherwise First Kings material that he's importing. But he inserts that. He, he's trying to, to the observant reader, he's trying to get him to see, I'm making a point here. Solomon was over all Israel when he when he established his kingdom. He established his kingdom over all 12 tribes. David ruled over all 12 Israelitish tribes, right? Well, and he was, of course, he was the head of the Davidic covenant, one of the major parties to the Davidic covenant. Well, so too must any ideal royal servant of his rule over all of Israel, not just the southern kingdom. Not just, I don't know, uh, you know, eight of the 12 tribes. It has to be the whole kit and caboodle. Think of that, how that might apply to Jesus, by the way, and us. Another way in which the Chronicler portrays Solomon as an ideal Davidic king is by um, relaying, excuse me, by informing us that Solomon's secure establishment of his kingdom was the result of God's blessing upon him. Verse 1, second portion of, of the verse. Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God, or you could almost, uh, the, uh, the Hebrew word there could almost be rendered, in one translation they looked at, renders it this way. Um, no, I'm sorry, never mind. Forget what I just said. It could also be implied because he secured his kingdom because the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. It's implied. The word because the Hebrew word key is not in there, but uh, but it's implied. And the the chronicler is saying this is this is what God does to ideal servants of His. He blesses them so that they prosper. Yet another way that uh, the chronicler does this uh, task of of uh, highlighting Solomon as an ideal sort of um, uh, Davidic king is by relaying how Solomon 
summoned the whole nation of Israel, all of Israel, to join him in the worship of God. That's what's going on in verse 2. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, meaning about uh, about going to worship the Lord. That's implied by, and we know that from what comes follows that verse. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's households, in other words, and all that they represented, all the people that they represented. He spoke to them all. And what did he do? What was he speaking to them about? He was speaking about going to Gibeon to offer sacrifices with Solomon, their king, uh, to the Lord. And the writer to the Hebrew, uh, the writer of the Hebrews, the uh, the writer of Second Chronicles wants us to see this, and saying Solomon, you need to understand that Solomon initiated this, and that this took place almost certainly at the at the front end of his reign, at the opening of his reign, as part of his establishment of his kingdom. This uh, worship service took place. He led it. Um, and he, and he brought all of Israel with him, and he brought all of Israel with him to do what? To seek the Lord's blessing of the nation through Solomon himself reigning over them in a wise and godly fashion. Lord, I need your grace, is what Solomon did. Uh, presumably, oh, undoubtedly, uh, even though we don't have the words of that prayer in here. That's what was going on. He was dedicating his kingdom, his rule, his reign, to the Lord. And seeking the Lord's grace in ruling over that kingdom that he himself represented and have his God's people do the same, pray the same thing. Ideal king. He does, ideal kings do these. Ideal uh, uh, Yahweh uh, serving kings do that. Right? A couple more ways that Solomon, make, uh, uh, that the chronicler makes this point about Solomon is an ideal is he does this by defending Solomon's choice of venues for this worship service. Read verses 3 uh, through 6 with me. I'll read them. You follow along. You need to have your Bibles uh, with you. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon. Notice high place. Uh-oh. For, why did he go there? For, the answer is given, for Oh, God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, made in the wilderness. Actually, Bezalel made it, but we could say Moses did because Moses commissioned Bezalel to make it. We're going to read about Bezalel in the next two verses from now. Um, He goes on, However, David had brought up uh, the ark of God, not the tent of meeting, but the ark of God from uh, from, uh, Kiriath-Jerim to the place... He had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent, not the tent, not the tabernacle, but a tent for the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. David had done that. Now, and then Solomon goes on, uh, Chronicle goes on, it says, Now the, the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. By the way, he didn't just make the bronze altar. He also, along with Aholiel, I think was the other guy's name, who was uh, instrumental in making the furnishings of the tent of meeting. But anyway, um, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, who made, who uh, had made, that bronze altar was there before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly sought it out. It could also be rendered sought him out. There's some 
uh, there's a serious debate as to whether or not they were seeking out the the it is referenced to the altar or it, or it could be rendered him meaning reference to the Lord but the Lord is uh, it, it really doesn't make much of any difference how it's rendered and then he concludes that that uh, explanation in verse six and Solomon went up there Gibeon before the Lord to the bronze altar which was at the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. See, what's going on here is, um, well, let, let me, re, let me, I'm going to read you a quote. The chronicler is trying to explain in the passages that I just read, he's trying to, he's trying to, um, inform rather his post-exilic readers, who were the, uh, audience, the original audience, that Solomon did nothing wrong when he offered up those sacrifices at Gibeon rather than at Jerusalem. Now, let me read you what uh, Richard Pratt says uh, that helps kind of explain this a little bit better and takes less time than I would take rambling on. So Pratt, in his commentary, uh, says this about this whole situation, uh, the explanation that uh, the chronicler gives. The chronicler's desire to exalt Solomon as an ideal for his readers led him to add a defense of Solomon's worship at Gibeon in verses 3 through 6. The entire history of Chronicles emphasized the centrality of Jerusalem worship, specifically at the temple. Remember, Chronicles was written in between 400 and four, between 450 and 400 B.C., more than likely. Uh, a long time uh, into the future from the time that he's talking about when Solomon, uh, uh, Solomon is worshiping. Let me start again. So the entire history of Chronicles emphasized the centrality of Jerusalem worship. This message was vital for the chronicler's post-exilic readers. For this reason, he, the chronicler, explained that God's tent of meeting, which was there in Gibeon, was there, rather, in Gibeon. That's where it was. This tent of meeting Pratt says, was none other than the one Moses had made in the desert. When David brought up the ark to Jerusalem, he pitched another tent for the ark in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar for sacrifices remained in Gibeon. For this reason, it was perfectly acceptable that Solomon and the assembly inquired there. Again, he does this because of his focus. He, he provides an explanation which the writer of the Kings did not. The writer of the Kings left it ambiguous. He actually said high places and just walked away from that statement. Uh, yet another, uh, I know this is a long list, but there's a lot in here. Uh, thing that God did was to uh, portray Solomon ideally is he cited evidence of God's approval of Solomon's leading of the nation to worship him. And that evidence is verse 7. In that night, meaning after the uh, worship service, in that night God appeared to Solomon, I wonder what that looked like, and said to him, ask what I shall give you. Immediately after the description of his leading of the people in worship. This is again further evidence. uh, The writer of the book is trying to say, look at Solomon. Look at him. Look at what God offered him. Tell me what you want. There were no qualifications to the Lord's offer to Solomon in verse 7. He could have said, ask for anything he wanted. 
apparently. But he didn't. The chronicler wants us to see. He asked for nothing other than what he himself needed to rule over God's people in such a way that God himself was honored and that the people were blessed by his rule. Through his rule, I should say, from God. The chronicler wants us to note how unselfish Solomon was at this point in his life. So then, concluding this first point, the chronicler wants his original readers, and the Holy Spirit wants you and me, to view Solomon as an ideal royal descendant of David, at least as we read the Chronicles. Why? Why does he want that? The reason is, I'm all but certain, in fact I am certain, is because of who Solomon was. He was a type. He was a type of the truly ideal, the truly perfect son of David, royal son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope of sinners precisely because he was a perfect Solomon. He was a perfect human being who was also the king of Israel, that is to say, Yahweh himself, God. And and Jesus is it. Solomon is a type of him. And we are to read Chronicles and this passage that way. We're to see Jesus. We're not to see principally Solomon. And what a, cause again, this is a construct. The, it, it, this is selective. What this, what the chronicler was doing here. We know of Solomon's sins because of first kings. But that's not what we're to see here. And this particularly, unlike 1 Kings, points us in a more clear and obvious way to the ideal servant and son of David who was uh, the fulfillment of that covenant. Speaking of which, there's my second point. The chronicler not only portrays Solomon as the uh, ideal royal son of David, but he also portrays Solomon's glorious rule as a fulfillment, a fulfillment of God's covenant with David. He portrays the, Solomon's rule this way as evidenced by Solomon's, first of all, by his response to God's offer. I've already uh, read verse 7. God said, ask what you will. And Solomon responded this way again, Thou hast dealt with my father David. You're dealing with David when you're talking to me, is what he's saying. There. You, thou hast dealt with my father David with great loving kindness. How? By showing me, by making me king in his place. I'll read it exactly. And hast made me king in his place. And then he says in verse 9 more clearly, Now, now, O Lord God, thy promise to my father David is fulfilled. Now. Meaning, in me, is what he's saying. For thou hast made me king over, all, over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. 
Solomon flatly, or excuse me, the, uh, uh, hold on just a minute, I just lost my place. Yeah, he, he flatly declares that uh, there, in those verses I just read to you, that his own ascension to his father's throne as king of Israel was a fulfillment of the promise that God had made with his father, King David. I'm the fulfillment. Rather, I am a fulfillment. He's quite obviously referring to the gracious promises when he, uh, the, the promise that he refers to here in, in uh, verse 9, thy promise to my father David is fulfilled. He's obviously referring to the gracious promises that God made in the covenant that he made with David. I'm going to read that again to, for you just so you can be reminded of what that covenant said and uh, at least a portion of it. This is in First Chronicles chapter 17, uh, the text we read some weeks back. I'll start in verse 3, but note particularly the last verse I read, which is verse 11. Okay, but I'll start in First Chronicles 17, verse 3. And it came about that night, and that's this, this is the night after the worship service at Gibeon. And it came about at that uh, came about the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, "Go and tell David his my servant, thus says the Lord." You shall not build a house for me to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. In all places where I have walked with all Israel, uh, all places where I have walked with all Israel, have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be leader over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be moved no more, neither shall the wicked waste them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. And then he says this in verse 11. In verse 11, um, uh, um, yeah, just listen to it. And it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, die, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. There's that word establish again. Solomon. That's the, that's, that's what he means when the writer, uh, the chronicler, when he says, now, O Lord, thy promise to my father David is fulfilled. Verse 11 that I just read to you in 1 Chronicles 17. And notice again, it was the Lord, 1 Chronicles 17 made it very clear, it was the Lord who was going to establish David's son's kingship. The Lord was going to do it. And he did just that for Solomon in fulfillment of this promise uh, that we just read. To the degree that Solomon's reign over Israel was a glorious and successful reign, to, the, to that degree, it was a result of the great wisdom with which God blessed him. 
that we read of in verses 11 and 12. I'm not going to bother to reread it for the sake of time. But notice back in verse 1, uh, what the chronicler said there in verse 1. He said, Solomon, and this is the New American Standard Version, which is why I'm kind of a little... Uh, have a preference for the other one I read earlier. But he says, Solomon established himself securely over his kingdom. Now, what that doesn't mean, folks, it doesn't mean that Solomon was the ultimate cause of his own success and his own establishment, shall we say. As I just noticed, noted a moment ago, God was the ultimate cause of of Solomon's success, per the Davidic Covenant's words in securing, securely establishing his kingdom. God did that, not Solomon. But God regularly uses means to accomplish his eternally decreed ends. Right? And Solomon's wisdom was undoubtedly the principal God-given means by which Solomon secured himself, securely established himself over his kingdom. God gave him wisdom to do that. And the fact that uh, God needed to get uh, that that it was his wisdom god given wisdom that allowed solomon to uh rule uh rightly in a way that was a blessing uh to the people and an honoring to god is evident from what solomon himself wrote in proverbs i'm going to read just a couple of proverbs here uh proverbs chapter 8 i can find it proverbs chapter 8 speaks uh, rather extensively it personifies wisdom in verse 22, no, 12. Verse 12. I'm going to read through 21. Um, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine. Remember, wisdom is personified here. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, notice, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches, notice, and honor are with me, enduring wealth, and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield than choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. Solomon's writing about himself and other kings like him. But he's speaking about himself right there. That's how the why the Lord gave him what he did in the way of wisdom and in the way of uh, prosperity and and uh, and wealth and power and influence and all that sort of stuff, because God gave him wisdom, and that wisdom was the means by which he obtained those things through the blessing of God. God regularly uses means that He has appointed to bless our labors and our callings as well. Whether your calling is to be a homemaker. Or, or a provider of your family, or a student, or just um, a child who uh, obeys his parents or her parents. That's a calling, too. We all have callings. Regardless of what it is, God uses means 
to bless our labors in those callings, our sincere and concerted efforts to trust and obey him, God blesses. That's one of the means that he uses. As we make a concerted effort and a sincere effort to, to trust the Lord, to, to act on his promises in faith, and to obey his, his commands, the Lord blesses those means, you see. As we are diligent in fulfilling our God-given callings, he blesses our diligence, our faithfulness to the degree that we are imperfectly faithful. And again, there's scriptures that could be brought to bear to make these points. I trust you know some of them. I've read some of them. Well, the fact that Solomon's reign was gloriously successful was also evidenced and again, I'm not going to read this, but it was also evidenced by what we read in the last three or four verses in this chapter. It was, it's evidenced by the honor, wealth, and power with which God blessed him. He had a glorious rule because he was blessed of God through the Davidic covenant. And through his obedience, at least up until he went wayward, to the Davidic covenant that he was a party to, along with his father and his descendants too. But the success that Solomon enjoyed from the Lord was only a proximate fulfillment of the promises that God made in the Davidic covenant to David and to Solomon. It was only approximate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment, and you know what I'm about to say, of the covenant promises that were made to David was the person and mediatorial work of David's greatest royal descendant, King Jesus. The anointed one of God, the Messiah. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. The, and it's referring specifically, particularly to the kingly anointing. Of, of, of Jesus. Um, it is he, the God-man, who the Davidic covenant was ultimately made with and who is the quintessential fulfillment of that covenant. I'll prove it to you in conclusion. Acts chapter 2. Look with me there. It's the Pentecost, Peter's Pentecost sermon. Starting in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, Peter, speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the following, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he says this, For David says of him, meaning of Jesus, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken, taken from Psalm 16. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow the Holy One to undergo, thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. 
Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. And then Peter goes on, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, meaning he's still in it. And so, because he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him, here it is, with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he swore to David that, he, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he is neither abandoned, was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up, again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of this Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See that? The Vita covenant was promised to David. Psalm 16 was all about Jesus. The Vita covenant was yeah, made with Jesus. And so was Psalm 16. And so, were, so was Psalm 110 that he cited. And numerous other Psalms as well. All about Christ and the Davidic covenant was all about Christ. So how should you and I respond to this fact that um, that uh, Solomon's rule was fulfilled uh, in, uh, excuse me, the Jesus, Jesus ministry, his life and his person and his work, and yes, his rule was the, the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. I'm going to finish reading what uh, at, saw what Peter wrote in that sermon that I just broke off from. I'm going to start in verse uh, 37 and read to verse 40. Now, this is how you should apply it. Now, when they heard this, what I just said about uh, Jesus being the Lord in Christ, uh, whom they crucified, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, your descendants, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And then Luke responds after those words of Peter, and with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And oh, also, I'm putting this in from the wrath of God. That's the way to um, apply this sermon. If you have never uh, bowed the knee to the king uh, of the universe, who is Jesus Christ, and fled to him with your heart in faith and repentance, trusting him alone, to save you from God's wrath and to make you right with God, to reconcile you with God, you need to be saved. You need to be saved from this perverse generation and even more importantly, 
and more um, ominously, the wrath of God that you will experience for all eternity if you don't flee to Christ. Have you fled in faith and faith alone to Christ alone? Is he your savior? Is he your king? Because he's not your savior if he's not your king as well. You see, he's, he is the quintessential king of Israel. Of all those, and Israel is all those who believe like Father Abraham believed on Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you trusted personally in Jesus? May God give you the grace to do so if you haven't. If you have, show how thankful you are the rest of this week by turning away from sin and temptation, by seeking diligently the face of God in the scriptures and in prayer and in family worship, and by doing the hard work of putting off sin and putting on righteousness with looking to God for the assistance and the grace to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the meat in here. And it's a lot. Would you please bless it uh, to our hearing? Uh, Would you please use it to make us more desirous of you, Lord Jesus, as king of our lives and more dependent upon you for... um, our right standing. That is to say, build our faith and our trust in you. Uh, Give us more faith is what I'm saying, Lord. Would you please grant each of us more faith than we have because we need more faith to believe your promises, to act on your promises. Would you please give this to us and have mercy upon anybody who doesn't know you, who's listening right now. Give them a heart to believe. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In the sermon I mentioned and uh, briefly, uh, but in, very importantly, that uh, Jesus' person and his work was and is the fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. Um, indeed, it was ultimately made with Jesus. Uh, but his work... By that I was referring to his atoning work, his work of redeeming, purchasing a people for himself, not only through his payment of our punishment for our sins, but also uh, in his obedience to the law that was then credited or has been credited to the true believer. That's the work of Christ, um, but it is centered upon, in many ways, upon the uh, de- his death upon the cross. And this meal proclaims that same gospel message in pictures, in the elements and my handling of them, and your partaking also. Uh, but uh, this meal is designed to portray uh, the gospel afresh, just the same word that was... Uh, Uh, briefly referenced there in the sermon. The Lord Jesus himself uh, instituted this meal, and uh, there's record of it in several places, uh, three of the Gospels and uh, also over in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read from uh, Mark's account, Mark 14, starting in verse 22, where we read the following. And when they were eating, 
he, Jesus, took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, notice, of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This um, meal is one of two holy ordinances that Christ gave to his church before he ascended into heaven, the other, of course, being baptism. Both these sacraments, we call them in Presbyterian churches, if you don't like that, just say holy ordinance. Uh, But both of these sacraments were... Uh, we believe, we are convinced that the Bible teaches are signs and seals of that covenant of grace of which the Davidic covenant was an administration. They are signs and seals of that covenant and the benefits that that covenant promises to those who uh, receive um, Christ, the covenant head. Um, and, uh, yeah, to those who receive Christ. It is a sign or a symbol in that it pictures for us uh, one portion of his uh, atoning work, which was to die and pay through that death the penalty for our sins and endure the wrath of God that his law demanded uh, against sin. Uh, It pictures that. It symbolizes that. But it is more than merely a symbol more than merely a sign pointing to Christ's crosswork. It is also a seal of that new covenant. God made the covenant. It is his seal. He is saying something, particularly God the Son, who is the head of that covenant, Jesus. He is saying something in this meal as we partake of it. He is making promises to you, in effect. He is saying, my promises that I made, this is another promise about the promises, my promises that I made, I'm keeping I keep them. And you can believe them and take them to heart and act upon them. Because I'm God and I don't uh, don't take back things that I have said. God does not change his mind. Praise the Lord. So, uh, it is a sign... But it is also God confirming the the faithfulness of his promises made to us in the covenant. And by being both a sign and a seal of the covenant, it also is, and scripture also implies this uh, clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it is a means uh, of grace. It is a means that God uses to bless people who rightly partake of it or observe it and then respond in faith and repentance, because it is a preaching of the gospel. And they respond uh, and receive forgiveness. And therefore, it becomes a saving means of grace uh, to that individual. This meal is not for everyone. This meal is only for those who know themselves to be Christians as the Bible defines the term. Lots of people say they're Christians in America. doesn't mean they are. Lots of people, churchgoers say they're Christians. doesn't mean they are. The Bible defines what a Christian is. Somebody who believes and trusts, actively trusts that Jesus is the only, his or her only hope of escaping eternal damnation. If you believe that, 
you are welcome to come to this table to partake of these elements. But I will add a a couple of caveats. You need to not just be a Christian, but you need to be a Christian who is a baptized member of an evangelical church. Not necessarily this church, but it certainly can be this church, but of an evangelical church. The baptism, uh, the fact that you were baptized indicates that some uh, ecclesiastical body, church body, has has seen that you are fit uh, a fit member of the church and deserve to be called a member of the church. And uh, you've, they've heard a credible profession from you. I'm talking to adults now, or people that are of age. Uh, and evangelical church means one that believes the gospel that I just told you about, that Jesus is the only hope of sinners, and you've got to believe in him. And it's only by faith that you're made right with him, with God. If you belong to such a church and are a baptized member of that church, uh, you're welcome to come. Uh, one other caveat, you must not be clinging. You must not be cherishing sin in your heart. The psalmist said in Psalm 66, God will not hear. He will not abide by that. So if you've got some sin that you're clinging to, refusing to repent of, you do not need to be taking of this meal. You need to be repenting while the rest of us partake. Because it's dangerous to partake unworthily. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love uh, damaged sinners. We thank you that even though we struggle with sin, if we are struggling, we are welcome to this table, even though we are uh, poor servants and uh, imperfect, very imperfect, far from ideal as our head is, covenant head is. Thank you that this, uh, if we, as we partake of this, that we are actually fellowshipping with you, Lord Jesus. You are the head, the host of this table. And we fellowship with you in a unique way when we partake of it rightly at your uh, invitation. Would you please set aside these elements from their common everyday use under the holy purposes for which we are now about to use them? And would you please bless our partaking, that it might be for your glory, uh, our response might be for your glory, and uh, that it also might be for our good. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. As I am ministering in his name, now give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Uh, Take and eat. Please wait until we are all finished uh, being served, and then we'll partake together.
body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as has already been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Again, wait until we're all served, and then we'll partake together. There's grape juice in the middle for those who can't not in good conscience partake of the wine, but we would encourage you to partake of the wine. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what you did for us, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much that you were willing to um, endure uh, divine wrath, infinite wrath that the burning of the wine reminds us of, that you endured uh, and quenched so that it wouldn't come to us. We thank you for um, means that you've appointed to be a blessing to us, to help us in our battle with sin and dwelling sin and to grow us in faith and encouragement and comfort. We ask that you would 
use our partaking now and uh, and in, in this coming week by encouraging us, uh, assuring us of your love, of your continued forgiveness of us, of your uh, being with us through the Spirit at all times, never forsaking us. Please draw us closer to your holy heart. And um, help us to honor you as an expression of our thanks. uh, To honor you with obedience and a determination to trust you more and act on your promises more. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's conclude with our final hymn. Somebody tell me what that was, please.